how much of it was just from Bannon and how much of it was the president's own instincts. Bannon himself claims that these are the president's own instincts. And if he's right about that, then this problem will outlast Bannon's tenure at the White House. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined on the phone by the co-editors of FP's Elephants in the Room blog, Peter Fever and Will Inboden. Peter is a professor of political science and public policy and Bass Fellow at Duke University. He's also the director of the Triangle Institute for Security Studies and the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. Will is executive editor of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He also serves as associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and distinguished scholar at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So it's an auspicious day. A great darkness has crossed over America and finally left. I'm not talking about the eclipse, which I hope you guys saw today. Did you guys get outside and see the eclipse at all? I did. I was out there with uh, my son, and we were uh, marveling at it and and, uh, also marveling at the height. (laughs) Will, did you make a little uh, cereal box pinhole device? You know, I didn't make the cereal box uh, pinhole, but I'm here at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, doing research, and uh, stepped outside, and a couple of my uh, fellow researchers had those special dark shades, so I was able to see it from here. Nice. I, I gave it a B. Like a B minus, maybe. I was expecting, you know, total blackout. Um, but, you know, you can't always get what you want. However, this is the segue. Uh, this darkness that has passed is Bannon. He has finally left the White House late last week. Well, it was a Friday afternoon, classic Washington time to get rid of bad news. Uh, and the special advisor to President Trump is finally out of the White House. Back at Breitbart News as executive editor. And, you know, as FP's co-editors of Elephants in the Room, our Republican blog of loyalists, like, you guys must be sad about this, huh? Well, I'll be honest, uh, I, I think that we've been longing for the White House to establish a more disciplined process uh, that would be more conducive to good policy. From the beginning, the White House had, had a very chaotic process with too many power centers, too many people rivaling then Chief of Staff uh, Ryan Priebus, uh, and and it, it was chaotic, and it was uh, not conducive to good policy. and. And the administration stumbled literally out of the gate in the first days of the first weekend. They were making mistakes, and, and some of those mistakes could be traced back to Bannon's influence. And so I think his departure offers at least some modest hope of, of better process in the White House. Will, you're not upset either? No, I, I admit I'm uh, pretty happy to, to see him go. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm doing research out here at the Reagan Library for a book I'm writing on Reagan foreign policy. And one one curiosity to me has been how Bannon is um, known as a big fan of Reagan. You know, he made a documentary film on Reagan. 
And yet I never saw any uh, signs of Reaganism or the, or the spirit of the Reagan administration and Bannon's approach, either in temperament or ideological convictions or, or process. Uh, of course, I'm someone who's generally a, a fan of uh, Reagan and the Reagan administration. And so I think uh, having, you know, Bannon was almost the, the anti-Reagan with everything he stood for. So ha having, him, having him gone is, a, is certainly not, not a loss. That said, uh, he may be gone from the White House, but it seems pretty clear he's not going to be gone from the scene. And so we're all watching with um, some anxiety to see uh, how he reemerges in his you know, his new incarnation. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I've been checking Breitbart uh, more in the past few days than in the past several months just to see if his influence being back at the helm uh, has changed the tenor of what they're putting out. There was this weird story that Breitbart put out today and then they retracted partially about Ivanka Trump being behind Bannon's ouster and then quickly sort of backed away and said, no, 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 we got the wrong information, which gave me that sort of read between the lines, you know, that journalist spidey sense that Bannon, as he has said publicly, is still very much on Team Trump. He is, you know, going to be fighting from the outside and continuing this agenda. Although he did give this quote to the Weekly Standard uh, that said, the Trump presidency that we fought for and won is over. What do you think that means, Peter? Look, every administration has policy disagreements and policy debates. Um, this administration, though, is particularly divided on big policies, point one. Point two, the president himself seems to be harder to pin down, uh, that he would, he, he sides with one faction and then another faction, uh, and, and can, it's hard to predict. Uh, in fact, some have suggested that whoever is the last person to brief him has the upper hand on where the president's going to land. But then point three is, it's not just principal debate over policy, which is actually healthy and necessary. It's policy debate masquerading as a street fight with everyone knifing each other and, and um, undermining each other in, in print. And it's that last dimension that, that Bannon was sort of most known for and I think was most destructive uh, in, the, uh, in, in terms of his impact on, on, on Trump's success. It's striking how little the, the president has accomplished, how little he can say, here's a big achievement that I've delivered. And, and I think part of that is because uh, the, the White House never got a process that was able to um, develop a, a, clear law, a clear policy, even if it required compromise, and then sell it to in the political space. That was Bannon's job. He was the political advisor. And the failure to sell the president's policies and build a coalition of support, I think that falls on him uh, to a large degree. Uh, and so uh, the fact that there are um, policy disputes is not the issue. The fact that they couldn't resolve those disputes and come up with an effective solution, that's the problem. You know, it seemed like Bannon almost had his enemies list, you know, whether it was – I mean, he came in as the arch-populist, and he still is the arch-populist, the architect of this strategy. And, you know, he brought in a little bit or a lot of, depending on your uh, interpretation of things, of the alt-right. Um, he championed, you know, a strong trade policy, a nationalist, almost pop, you know, populist economic policy. He was strong on China. He was hard on immigration. Um 
And I think those elements are still there. But are, are we – do you guys expect that we will see a less populous White House? I mean certainly Kelly looks to be getting things ship shape and establishing the structure and the process and getting rid of some of the elements that he didn't like there. Um, but, you know, is the tenor of the White House going to change now that Bannon isn't sitting in, you know, in the West Wing? Well, I'll, um, this is Will here. Uh, first on the weekly standard quote you cited, I think it's that sort of self-aggrandizement that got Bannon fired in the first place, where he thinks of himself as, he seemed to think of himself as more Trump than Trump himself. And uh, I think that's what, you know, really finally did him in was, you know, President Trump, who is famously insecure and uh, always wants to make sure he's getting the lion's share of the credit really resented uh, Bannon being seen as the um, as the genius behind his the strategic genius behind his his election victory, and also the the power behind the throne politically. So that's um, that's what really jumped out at me um, when when Bannon would give that you know very self serving quote to the to the Weekly Standard. But to uh, on the question of the the populism going going forward, um, we'll we'll see. I mean, potentially Bannon will have an even more effective platform from Breitbart to be pushing that. What's been um, underreported and underappreciated about Bannon is his rather stunning incompetence during his time in the White House. Uh, you know, Peter made this uh, point a little bit earlier. Corey made it in her uh, excellent post at Elephants in the Room. But um, just about every policy initiative he tried, he failed at. Uh, just about every uh, effort to increase President Trump's political support, whether in Congress or with his approval ratings, he he failed at, and he eventually found him. You know, most of his allies had left the administration, uh, had left the White House, so he failed at building a coalition of like-minded co-belligerents to push his agenda. And so he found himself eventually uh, completely isolated and ineffective. And, you know, the handwriting had been on the wall for several weeks or even a few months uh, that he was going to be leaving. So what that means for the future of uh, populism, the populist movement, populist energy, we'll see. On the one hand, it's a short-term setback, given that the movement's main champion has just been, you know, uh, disgracefully dismissed from the White House. On the other hand, he may uh, he had shown that he was effective in his previous incarnation with Breitbart, and uh, now that he's returning to that. Maybe he he's uh, he will be more more effective in in revivifying populism. So, what are the what are the big programmatic areas of the policies that that Bannon really cared about? Um, and you know, how are we going to or listeners going to be able to chart you know the changing tides of the administration going forward? We're going to see some of these things drop. I mean, we've been talking in the office about the fact that you know the China hawks, the the really aggressive you know anti-China trade, you know currency manipulator people have been shunted aside or have left entirely at this point. But but what are some what are some of the others? Yeah, I think the the two main policy initiatives I'd look at uh, on as far as you know proxy gauges for populism's effectiveness would be one economic policy towards China, uh, and you've you've already you've already touched on that, and then two uh, immigration policy, particularly any further efforts to uh, get the wall funded and built or to enact any other. Uh, uh, you know, large sweeping bans as they've been trying to do before. So those those seem to be the two that most animate Bannon more than more than anything else. 
Bennett also had, you know, sort of bizarro tax policy, right, as part of this sort of economic populism, giving rise to the, you know, stop taking the jobs away from white working class rust belters and giving them to Mexico and giving them to China. But he also had this tax, po- tax policy formulation, which Trump has seemed to parrot and to push forward that, you know, encourages enormous cuts to the upper end of the echelon. Yeah, that was always a uh, Peter. You may want to chime in here for me. You know, I always found Bannon somewhat incoherent on tax policy. It was hard to figure out where exactly he wanted to go with that. You know, on the one hand, he styled himself as a you know anti Wall Street crusader. Uh, on and yeah, on the other hand, you know, his fingerprints did seem to be on some of these um, uh, corporate tax cut uh, initiatives, but but those those didn't seem to be the things that fueled his fire the way the the China bashing and the immigration bashing did. So part of the challenge is that that Bannon didn't have a coherent uh, policy agenda and didn't seem to have a reasonable strategy for achieving it. He was waging war on everybody uh, and was doing a mere base mobilization strategy. That's how the president got elected in the campaign, and that's fine if you're doing a vote on election day. But if you're trying to legislate, then you've got to make compromises. You've got to reach across uh, uh, the different factions of the Republican Party, including those factions that got elected in spite of President Trump, not because of President Trump. And if you don't, then you have to cooperate with the Democrats because they have, uh, particularly in the Senate, they have blocking power. And this is basic politics 101 that everyone who has governed has had to wrestle with. Uh, and and the Trump administration has just struggled with it for their first half of the year, in part, it seems to me, because they had this uh, burn-the-place-down kind of approach that was uh, uh, came directly from Bannon. Now, here's the question. Here's the really acid question. How much of it was just from Bannon, and how much of it was the president's own instincts? Bannon himself claims that these are the president's own instincts. And if he's right about that, then this problem will outlast Bannon's tenure at the White House because whoever comes in afterwards uh, will have to deal with the president who wants to do it this way. But it hasn't worked. It really has not worked. And the White House is going to have to change its approach if they want to get uh, policies enacted. I mean, and the other big question that I have is this, does Bannon's departure mark the end of the exodus? I mean, are we going to continue to see key figures leaving the administration? There's been a lot of scuttlebutt about Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, uh, and people have openly wondered whether, you know, Mattis uh, will take much more as Secretary of Defense, especially after, you know, Trump's tweets about transgender and his response to Charlottesville. Um, and then there are, you know, the knives are out for McMaster from the alt-right and even within the administration, it seems like. Do we have a more stable leadership? Do these adults in the room stick around? Well, there's been a death watch for pretty much every <laughs> senior member of the administration. Um, and it must be said that the, it is probably a very challenging environment to work in. So politics is, is a rough sport. In the best of times, uh, Will and I served in the Bush administration during some really challenging times politically, the Katrina, um, uh, Hurricane Katrina, aftermath, uh, the, the 
um, Supreme Court nomination of Harriet Myers that had to be um, withdrawn. Uh, then, of course, the Iraq War declining, uh, the fortunes in Iraq declining. Those were really tough times to work at the White House. But even in those times, there was a sense of uh, higher purpose for why we were there. Um, and there was a deep respect that I think almost everyone in the administration had for the president and a belief that he was trying to do the right thing and his heart was in the right place. And so we were struggling on a policy, but by golly, if we all pitched in and, and tried harder, we could get it done. There was that kind of team spirit. Well, you also had Dick Cheney to whip everybody into shape and put the fear of God in them. That's that's what it looked like on the outside, but it didn't feel that way on the inside. You mean he's just a lovable old grandfather? Is that what you're telling me? He has an underappreciated warm and fuzzy side. Good to know. But the point is, I don't get the sense that that's how it feels uh, in the Trump White House these days. Uh, The the demeanor, when you look at the the folks, I mean, of course, John Kelly's famous um, video of him, you know, while the president's issuing his Tuesday remarks, on um, Charlottesville and just the pain in his eyes, there's a sense that this is a much harder duty. Uh, and that's, that feeling is, you know, only six months in when they should still be riding the momentum and the uh, adrenaline. Right. But these, these guys you're speaking of, these guys you're speaking of also, they aren't the true believers of Seb Gorka and Stephen Miller and, you know, Steve Bannon. These are seasoned uh, you know, intelligent professionals with long service careers who have chosen, you know, to come on board the Trump administration out of a sense of duty, I'm sure, and probably out of a sense to see things through. I just wonder if they're really going to be in it for the long run or if they won't be able to take the president's capriciousness that much longer. They all came in with very high reputation and a reputation for uh, integrity and or success. You know, H.R. McMaster, very well celebrated as a general. Same with uh, General Mattis, um, Rex Tillerson, of course, CEO of a major corporation. So they didn't need White House service in order to polish their career. I think they did see it as national duty, really, duty to the country. Uh, But you're right that that uh, raises the question of them looking in the mirror and saying, I don't need this anymore. I don't sense that they're at that point now. Uh, I think there were times when I worried that a couple weeks ago. But I think they might see this as a chance to reboot the administration. And and so I'd be surprised if one of them left in the next uh, couple weeks or or months. I think that they may uh, last a bit longer because of believing that they have a chance to reboot. This is Will here. I'll uh, partly agree and partly disagree with with Peter. Uh, you know, I don't have any inside information of any looming departures, but just you know, uh, if uh, past this prologue, I think it's quite likely that in the next few months, certainly by the end of you know by December, by the end of the year, that we'll we'll see some more high pro high profile departures, uh, and those could be. I think they'd probably be driven by. Um, one of three reasons or calculations, or maybe some combination thereof. First would be um, other people who, just as a matter of conscience, uh, are so appalled by the president's, you know, recent uh, essentially support for white supremacy and, and neo Nazis uh, that they just can't abide this. And they didn't do a high profile resignation in the last few days, but they may have uh, already decided they're going to they're going to be leaving. That's possible. 
The second would be those who just are, are find the personal frustrations so acute, um, whether the, the personal attacks or the ongoing infighting, uh, or just you know some of the notorious, uh, really almost singularly unique difficulties of working for this president. Uh, and then the third kind of follows from the second, but it'd be a different calculation. It'd be those who just decide that they can't be effective anymore. Uh, that they that the uh, the ratio of their ineffectiveness and inability to get anything done is you know much higher than uh, you know the, the few times where they do feel like they're being they're being effective. Um, so I think. Those three factors are the different calculations that um, you know the senior people in the administration are making. Each person is going to obviously come to their own you know personal personal assessment, but I, I think that uh, we're going to see you know that the the departures are not done yet. We'll be seeing some more in the coming months. I think I'm going to side with you on this one, Will. You know, the other question I have is, you know, who's driving policy? Like, you know. Love him or hate him, Bannon was visionary in a certain way. He had a, a clear message, uh, both in terms of how to, you know, put it through Trump's mouth and out into the public sphere. And he had clear sort of, you know, big swath policies and programs that we spoke about a little bit. You know, with him gone, I wonder who's really driving things. God forbid it's the president himself. Um and yes, you know, the agencies are busy and they're rolling back regulations. They're, the president tweets that he's got these big – they're starting the NAFTA and renegotiations. There are certain things going on, but they almost seem like, you know, and Tillerson is shuttling around the Gulf and other places and then to Europe. But they almost seem like crises that the, they're putting out fires or working to prevent crises of the president's own making as opposed to setting an agenda um, – Anything beyond the president staying in office for another, you know, four years looking down the road to the next election cycle? Well, I, I think they may have squandered their chance to set the agenda. So if you say what's driving policy now, it's events, my dear boy, events. <laughs> the, uh, at the international uh, arena, of course, it's, it's events. But even at the domestic, in domestic policy, what's driving it is they have to raise the debt ceiling. They have to pass a budget or, or a continuing resolution to keep the government operating. These are artificial crises, if you will, crises that were created by the failure to get it done earlier. But nevertheless, it has to be done, and that's going to September is going to be entirely consumed by those uh, crises and and proactive agendas, whether it's a tax cut, whether it's um, Another run at a repealing Obamacare, or whether it's trying to get traction on the infrastructure initiative, all of those proactive policies have to take a backseat to the crises. And so I think that this administration faces a real danger of finishing their first year without having any legislative achievement that would be in the proactive realm. Everything will be reactive. Well, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I would, I would agree, I would agree with Peter on that. Um, you know, obviously the the administration uh, has you know squandered uh, its you know first few uh, hopes for big initiatives, whether the Obamacare repeal or the the Muslim ban or you know some of the others that we've been we've been talking about. Um, 
and and also I, I don't see anyone currently in the administration who's a a big policy visionary or policy entrepreneur. There may be some of those people that say the the deputy or below lower levels, but the senior levels, they're generally more more managers, and managers are usually more in a in a reactive mode. And yeah, there's certainly a lot to manage just to keep the ship of state. Uh, sailing, sailing along, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to see any major, major policy initiatives on the on the foreign policy front or the domestic policy front coming out. Well, one of the foreign policy things that we're going to be seeing, at least, we'll know of it later tonight, is Trump's Afghanistan policy, and maybe that is a, a function more of managing than any real visionary change here. What do you guys expect that we'll be talking about tomorrow? Well, let me first speak out in defense of managing. This administration inherited a foreign policy national security mess across the board. If you look at relations with great powers or or, uh, relations with smaller powers in our hemisphere, outside of our hemisphere, rebuilding American power at home, military uh, power, I mean, all of those was was a terrible mess. And it would have taken a very competent administration just to manage them well set aside doing uh, whole new things. Uh, and so I would have, I'd happily settle for an administration that successfully managed uh, these, these problems. But they've struggled here as well. And the Afghanistan policy is a good example. They've uh, they put in place an Afghanistan review, and according to reports, it was ready months ago. Uh, ready meaning that, that, the, that the national security team had reviewed it and identified uh, a recommendation, but they didn't. But the president did not decide, and uh, he instead sent them back to uh, do more and do more, and it's extended the process considerably by several months, while raising doubts around the world and also in Afghanistan, uh, where's this administration's commitment on the war? Frankly, it reminds me very much of President Obama's first year in office, uh, and you saw a similar kind of um, tortuous uh, policy review. What we think is going to come out is that the president is going to go along with the proposal that his advisors gave him, and that will be a modest increase that's designed not to win the war in the short run but to uh, uh, extend the pressure on the Taliban so that they will uh, not see a victory or a path to victory in the short to medium term, and so uh, increase the incentives for them to do a political uh, initiative. That, If they had done that six months ago, I think it might have had more impact than doing it now. It's a little bit late, but probably better late than never. That seems to be the least worst of the alternatives that the administration was considering. You know, I was told that there was going to be so much winning that I was going to be sick of winning. Uh, that I don't know. It doesn't sound like it from what I'm hearing. I wish I was sick of winning, too. Let me uh, revise and extend uh, Peter's comments there on Afghanistan. A couple of additional thoughts. Um, in the first, you know, to put it out there, is from what we've seen in the press about what the um, the president's decision that he's going to be announcing tonight, I I support what I know of it as far as this, you know, modest troop increase uh, with a with a hope for uh, using that the forces leverage for a political settlement eventually with the, with the Taliban, certainly to at least uh, arrest and reverse uh, you know some of the Taliban's recent gains. 
But what worries me is uh, I don't think, I don't know that President Trump believes in the strategy that he's going to be announcing tonight. Um, you know, all the signs we've seen is that he just wants out of Afghanistan. That was certainly Bannon's impulse. That was a mind meld they had. That's what Trump's past rhetoric had been on this. And this is where I'll extend Peter's comparison with uh, the first year of the Obama administration, because just as there we had, you know, a somewhat you know, torturous, longer than it needed to be review. There also you had a president announce a, at the time, a much more significant troop surge, but uh, it turns out he didn't really seem to believe in that either. And the problem when you have a commander-in-chief uh, ordering troops into uh, into combat when the president doesn't personally uh, believe in the mission so much is the minute something starts to go wrong, uh, whether with battlefield losses or diplomatic setbacks or more mischief from, from Pakistan, uh, the minute the strategy starts to get challenged or the implementation starts to encounter some turbulence, uh, you're not going to have the, the support from the commander-in-chief. And that's very demoralizing for, for the troops in the field and the intelligence professionals and everyone else, everyone else working on it. So that's, even though I support what seems to be the decision that's going to be announced tonight, uh, I worry that the president doesn't have his heart in it and that that's going to uh, leave us uh, very exposed going forward. I worry that the president couldn't find Kabul on a map. Well, there's that, too. Me, I, I'm, I'm always looking for the positive, so let me identify one potential <laughs> positive. You're just a ray of sunshine, Peter. Uh, well, that's, that's part of it. Someone has to be, uh, even in these dark days of the eclipse. So here's, here's If this podcast was being televised, you'd see Peter's making a, wearing a Make America Great Again hat right now. So. Oh, God forbid. So here, here's the idea. The president has a chance to seem presidential uh, uh-huh. tonight. When he's giving a, a primetime address, on a major matter of war and peace, it's hard to get more presidential than that. Uh, There's one or two other times when you can, in the aftermath of a tragedy, you get a chance to appear presidential. The president had his chance uh, after Charlottesville and he missed it. Uh, So this is another chance for him to be presidential. And if he does a good job, if he makes a compelling case uh, and explains his uh, the, the thinking behind his strategy, and if he makes it clear that, or a, a compelling case that he believes in the strategy and he's committed to it, that he's not going to be half-hearted. So if he rebuts the point that Will was making, I think that will help him. I think it will help uh, calm people's nerves. I think it will it'll introduce the, the meme that, okay, the adults are in charge now that Bannon is gone, the administration's a little uh, more stable, a little more capable of, of making good policy. So there is a chance for the president to, to do himself some good politically uh, whilst also doing some good in policy terms. And that's a fair point. If he misses this chance, that will just feed the narrative of a missed opportunity. And I think that's the real risk for the president. He's missed so many opportunities that he may be laying the groundwork for a primary challenge for someone not from the never-Trump wing, who of course will challenge him, but someone from his own wing who says, we could have done something great, but this president wasn't the man to do it. But he was right on the ideas, he just couldn't execute it. I think he's in danger of, of being primary. I think Bannon will probably eviscerate anyone that even comes close or sniffs it out. But as you wrote, you know, very nicely for us, you know, everyone's keeping their heads down for now. It's way too early. Are you guys seeing, uh, you know, the 
both you, Peter, and Will were among the early never Trumpers and the Republicans who said, "This is not a president we're going to we can back." The party has moved away from the conservative values that we have championed, and the you know the administration, the values of the administrations that we have worked for in the past. Are you seeing with the departure of Bannon um, and some of these sort of noxious elements like Scaramucci's weak uh, at the White House? A, a more responsible GOP that reflects some of the conservative values and a more sane and sensible foreign policy? You know, on the one hand, uh, uh, just looking at the, the staff roster at the White House now, it is immeasurably uh, better than it was back at the beginning when you had, you know, Mike Flynn uh, and Reince Priebus and, you know, you know any number of the others uh, there who are, who are now gone. So just in terms of the the quality uh, of uh, and competence of the, of the per- personnel, it is measurably bit better. But what's much worse is, uh, you know, President Trump has, you know, thus far in his you know first half year uh, plus in office, really I think validated and reinforced all of the concerns that those of us Republicans who opposed him back in the election had. If you go back and reread the text of uh, you know a couple of public letters that were put out or some of the other critiques made. On his character, on his temperament, on his uh, lack of lack of confidence, um, you know he's been demonstrating that in, that in spades. And so it's a, uh, you know, the glass half full read is you've got a you know more capable staff now, but the glass half empty is read is the president's been even worse than a lot of us a lot of us feared. And um, you know those those impressions are going to be going to be hard to hard hard to reverse. One other thing I will say, just as far as the Republican angle on this, is it does strike me. How um, and others have made this point as well, but I want—I think it, it bears looking at, particularly if you're a Republican member of Congress. How few uh, active, connected Republicans there are in the senior ranks of this White House? Uh, it's really Mike Pence. Um, I guess OMB Director Mulvaney, uh, maybe one or two others, but Priebus, for all of his uh, you know challenges and incapacity as chief of staff, uh, was very connected to the Republican Party as an institution. And you know this was already a president coming in who had very little connection to the Republican Party, but but now those those few staff members at the senior levels who did are, are gone now too. So you essentially have you know non-political career military uh, family members, uh, then some some Democrats like like Gary Gary Cohn um, and, and Vice President Pence, and so. Uh, the growing disconnect between this White House and the sinews and institutions of the Republican Party is also something to keep an eye on. That, again, could leave Trump open to a, a primary challenge. It's worse than Will says, because in the week before Charlottesville, the president was engaged in a tweet war against uh, the, the Senate majority leader. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, which, which made no sense to me, uh, because he needed to work with Congress to make it through September, to make to to deal with the domestic policy crises that were coming due. The, so it, it was odd to double down on the oppose your friends strategy that Bannon seemed to uh, personify. Can I go back to your question, though, about uh, how people like us who sign these letters, how we might feel? Uh, and, and it really repeats my theme about the missed opportunities. At every stage during the primary, during the general election, and uh, even since, just when you thought, well, okay, maybe now is the time when the President Trump will uh, do some things that would reassure those who hadn't been supporters before, but but are would 
can be persuaded to, to help the president deal with the challenges. He doesn't do it. It's always a missed opportunity. During the primary, uh, once he had sewed up the primary, that was a time for him to build out a, a policy apparatus that would reassure. He didn't do it. This is in the spring of, of 2016. And then right after he won the nomination you know, on the floor, what did he do? He gets into a fight with the Gold Star mother and father uh, needlessly, needlessly. Um, and even after he's, what, what are we talking about the week that Bannon leaves? We're talking about the president's uh, failure to uh, call out neo-Nazis and um, white supremacists uh, and, and thus, you know, squandering the moral authority of, uh, of the Oval Office. These are moments when he might have, if he'd done it differently, he could have uh, won over, I think, people who, who are keen uh, to see America succeed and therefore want the president not to fail catastrophically in dealing with the policy crisis he faces. But whenever that moment comes, it seems like he misses the opportunity. And it, it's, it's deeply unnerving for those of us who were outsiders but still want the, the president to succeed in confronting the challenges that he faces. I think part of the problem is that Trump, you know, he didn't, he insulted this Gold Star family and yet didn't really, you know, he got wrapped on the knuckles and columns and people thought it was ugly. But, you know, he still won the presidency. He hasn't faced these big losses from a sense of action. And I think he relishes this role still of being the outsider and the prize fighter with this, you know, unbelievable, incredible win that no one could have foreseen. So, you know, he, I think, maybe more successfully than other presidents, he has embraced this, you know, it's, it's a trope in American politics that you're going to come to Washington to fix it. And Trump seems seems determined to actually stay out of the the swamp that he has obviously criticized again and again and again. Well, I think the biggest question in American politics going forward will be this. Will Trump's base give him credit for trying, or will they fail him for failing? Because it, I, right now we're likely to head into the midterms, uh, which will start up with, you know, uh, with uh, gusto in just a couple months. Uh, we'll head into the midterm season with very little in a, terms of policy success for the Republicans to run on. Uh, will Republican voters say, well, you try, we give you credit for that? Or will they say, you guys didn't figure out how to get it done? And, and I think President Trump's um, political instincts, and certainly Bannon's political instincts, were you get credit for trying, even if you don't succeed. And my gut is that uh, that only takes you so far, because when people look at the missed opportunities and look why you didn't succeed, I think that they may uh, punish the president and his, and his supporters. The problem is that foreign policy is an odd place to have successes or failures, um, you know, unless you have thousands of soldiers coming home in body bags from, a, you know, like the Iraq war, a war that most people thought there was differences of opinion as to whether or not we should have gone in, but they felt that it was handled poorly thereafter. I think the country largely felt that. I think you're 100 percent right, Peter, and it's a question of whether or not Americans are going to still have health care. They're going to still have money in their pocketbooks. They're going to feel like they've had their tax burden reduced. But when it comes to the essential, you know, when it comes to foreign policy and the stuff that we think about all the time, 
Barring a war with North Korea, which will probably, you know, if a nuke lands uh, in Los Angeles, that's probably going to feel like something Trump didn't do that well. Um, it's sort of hard to see where the losses on foreign policy are. Will, maybe you can sort of take a look into your crystal ball and tell us where where that might happen? Yeah, well, you know, first I'll say that I generally buy the conventional wisdom that voters are mostly going to be more concerned with pocketbook issues and domestic policy than they are for foreign policy questions. But that said, uh, you know, we can point to a number of examples of where foreign policy uh, misadventures or failures uh, or vulnerabilities can can certainly uh, be a determining uh, be a strong factor at the at the ballot box. Um, so, to your question, risks for for Trump on that. Um, uh, certainly, uh, the possibility of another large-scale mass casualty terrorist attack in the United States uh, would be a profound game changer. Um, you know, nothing that any of us would would wish for. Um, but but if it would happen, uh, the question is, would voters rally to the flag and to the president, or would they blame him uh, blame him for it? Um, so much would de- would depend on the circumstances. But that would definitely be at the at the top of the list. Um, other high-profile ones that. Um, you know, uh, what do the next 6, 12, 18 months look like with the U.S.-Iran relationship with, you know, some of the cracks we're starting to see in the in the nuclear deal, some evidence of Iran's ongoing ongoing misbehavior. Um, another would be, uh, what uh, do we successfully wind up the uh, military campaign against the Islamic State, which does, you know, it's not in the headlines much these days, the military campaign. I know the part, not, I'm not talking about the Barcelona attacks, but... Um, uh, that could potentially turn into a success for for President Trump that he could that he he could point to, um, or it could also turn into a, an albatross if it goes if it goes if it goes sideways. Uh, and what about the possibility of uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin? I mean, if if Putin does start to do some of the aggressive moves that he seems to be buying his time for, you know, against the Baltics or renewed offensive against Ukraine, most American voters probably don't care about that a lot per se. But if it uh, represents to them a failure of presidential leadership, presidential weakness, um, a, a failure of the implicit grand bargain that Trump tried to, tried to strike with voters that, hey, I will be nice to Putin, I will be uh, much more conciliatory to Putin, and turn uh, he'll be a better friend to the United States. If voters you know, see that as not working out, that could be, uh, that could be another one. So I, I think President Trump, as a candidate, was able to take advantage of the chaos, that the global chaos, in the sense that tre- world events were trending against America, and that—that's when, you know, he said uh, we don't seem to win anymore. Looking ar- across the globe, we, uh, people seem to be making fun of us. Uh, they don't—we don't win anymore. That worked for him uh, during the campaign, but now uh, it's on him to change that narrative. <laughs> And if you look across the globe, does it seem like we're winning uh, any more than we were before? Does it look like people respect us any more than they did before? Uh, that will be a challenge and, and for him to make that case. And I, so I think he can be hoisted on his own petard. He's at risk of being hoisted on his own petard, even in the foreign policy arena. And then I, I would say that there's just there's kind of the intangible of – uh, even voters who don't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy, they they want to be able to feel proud of their country. They want America to be respected and liked in the world. Uh, you know, this was you know something that President Obama ran on to great effect back in the 2008 campaign of trying to restore America's standing in the world. You know, uh, as Bush alums, Peter and I would both tell you we thought that you know some of that critique was unfair, but it was a factor at the ballot box. Um, 
Well, look, it's no secret that the world is really ridiculing and almost pitying the United States right now because of President Trump. You know, that's not going to matter to voters as much as uh, pocketbook issues and employment and income and taxes. But if, you know, global disdain for the United States continues on its present trend, I could see that being a factor as well. I mean, at least in the Bannon phase of this presidency, there was a, a, you know, I don't give a rat's ass uh, what you think of us. This is what we're doing since uh, about the administration. We'll see if that continues. I mean, I, 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 with the, you know, the hands on the tiller that we have now, it's hard to sort of see that, except we have an executive who drives the ship of state, you know, from... Uh, his morning tweets and watching Fox and Friends. Um, so I, I think that you're you're right in this sort of prescription that Americans want to be liked and want to see their country as a force for good. And I imagine that Trump feels the same way in his own sort of perverse uh, behavior or, or means of doing so. Um, I just, you know, I, I think we'll have to sort of wait and see how this, you know, Bannon's departure shapes the White House. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. It has not been a boring six months, that's for sure. Yeah. I tell my students, if you're not interested in these subjects, now you'll never be. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time to be doing what we're doing. And on that note, gents, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, go read FP's Elephants in the Room blog for more from Will and Peter, and we'll have them on again soon. Thank you guys so much for calling in. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.